3: I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is a show where we're exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in such a divided country. I'm Van Jones. Look, I just want to be very honest with you. I know for sure that most of us right now are feeling pretty discouraged. The political environment is just brutal, and it's getting worse and not better. And so I don't want you to think it's just some kind of Pollyanna show that you know we're not reading the news. It's bad out there. And I think a lot of people are starting to feel that you know politics just sucks right now. And what they really mean is that politicians suck, <laughs> that these politicians are out of touch, they're destructive, and people just almost want to throw their hands up. I don't want you to throw your hands up. I don't want you to give up on this country and what we can do together. And so therefore, I am bringing to you a voice that I hope will be uh, some balm in the daily wounds <laughs> that we experience in this news environment. This is a politician uh, who doesn't suck. He's <laughs> a politician who's not out of ideas. He's full of ideas. He's not in the way, he's making a way for people who really haven't had a champion in a very long time. His name is Michael Tubbs. He was a 26-year-old when he got elected to be the mayor of Stockton, California. I think he's one of the youngest mayors in the history of the country uh, for a city of that size. And when he got into office, he decided young black guy, grew up with a bunch of challenges, decides to make an unlikely alliance with the conservative white police chief to take on some problems there, got stuff done, and then put poverty. Of all the things you, can, you know focus on if you're a politician, poverty is usually not one of them because <laughs> people who are poor can't give you donations. Uh, they don't tend to fund PACs this guy focused on poverty and got something done about it.
2: In Stockton, folks were on Nextdoor, on Facebook, or in the chambers complaining about homelessness or complaining about crime or complaining about economic development. Like, we were complaining about everything, but the root cause was poverty. And I remember my first month getting my team together and saying, listen, the city may not be the best sort of place in government, To do this work, but for us to do our work, (laughs) poverty has to be addressed. So we're going to orient ourselves into being a very pro-opportunity, anti-poverty administration.
3: I just want you to hear from somebody who is actually still in the fight. He's no longer the mayor, but he's still doing great stuff. So after this break, get ready to take a big swig of inspiration from my guest, Michael Tubbs.
0: Just visit audible.com slash wondery or text wonderypod to five hundred five hundred. That's audible.com slash wondery pod or text wonderypod to five hundred-five hundred.
3: It's just a big honor to have you on the podcast. In some ways to me, like you're like the ideal uncommon ground guest <laughs> because Uh, what you've done to be a young guy, unbelievably young as a mayor, and to have been able to, as a Democrat in a purple city, get real stuff done to help real people. That's really what it's all about. And the thing about it is, I've worked in the White House and been around politics my whole life. It's easier to talk about stuff than to do stuff.
2: Oh, my gosh. I I, I love my new role now. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, look. Y'all need to be doing this, 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 and this. Exactly.
3: (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) So um, what I wanted to do was really trying to almost use this podcast as a tutorial. Most of the people I think who listen to this podcast are people who want to get stuff done. And yet it is so hard to figure out how to make stuff happen. I think people are giving up. I think people are feeling frustrated. And I see you as somebody who can really walk folks through just how you did some of the stuff that you did. So let's just start off with, the fact that you are not a Kennedy. (laughs) You you were not born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Uh, Give me the origin story of Michael Tubbs.
2: Yeah, Stockton, California is home, born and raised there. And Stockton is incredibly diverse. So on the street I grew up in, I had Sikh neighbors, I had Latino neighbors, and I had white neighbors. Mm, mm. And and, and my high school was 75% Latino. Wow. The oldest Sikh temple in North America was around the corner from my house. The largest Filipino population outside the Philippines was in Stockton. And also very conservative white folks mm-hmm. um, from, from agricultural families. And we lived in the south part of the city, which is like the south part of, of every city. It, it had great people, but, but, but terrible infrastructure and terrible investments. So my mom was in high school when she had me. She was a teenager. My father... I'm 31. He's been incarcerated for 27 of those 31 years, including the last 25 or so um, under the three strikes law. So part of what got me involved in policy and politics was just how deeply personal it was and how I was like, uh, my folks can't afford for government not to work. Right. Um, but to, to your point, politics was never something like my family. We didn't sit around the table and debate politics or, or, or read the New York Times. We barely sat around the table because mom was working. Mm-hmm. And you really, you only had three moms. Yeah. yeah. So three, my mom, my aunt and grandmother. And my grandmother was a social worker. She worked with um, welfare parents, helped them transition from welfare um, to work. My aunt was an, an accountant at the local community college and 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 my mom. And those three women raised us and they, raised me and my cousin and my brother with values around sort of um servant leadership just being in church so we were always serving Mm. even when we were hungry i remember being hungry and serving food Mm. (laughs) (laughs) this is what we did there was no fanfare around there was no like these are leaders but they were always running everything our house the church the children's ministry like they were always leading but leading in, in in different ways so when i got into politics it was Incredibly unlikely and, and not something that any of us, in terms of our nuclear family, thought would be the path.
3: Well, I think that's so important because, you know, I, I grew up on the edge of a small town in rural West Tennessee, a place called Jackson, Tennessee. I never heard the term activist or activism. I remember talking to my mother, you know, after I got out of college and law school and I was running around in the Bay Area being a, you know, berserkly activist, you know, and I would come home and I would talk to my mom and you know, I was like, you know, you know, we're, you know, the right wing is doing this and, you know, left wing that, blah, blah, blah. And I remember my mom saying, now, which wing are you? <laughs> I mean, like, really couldn't even track what I was talking about. And yet she was an incredible leader in our community, basically the head of her sororities chapter. She was almost any children's program that happened in our county. She was behind it, helping to make it happen. You know, one time they were going to build a jail in East Jackson, like the poor part of town. And. Uh, she was telling me about that. It turned out that she had led a march and had done all this stuff, but she but she never used the term activist. She was just like it's, you know it, it wasn't right versus left; it was right versus wrong. And it's just I think it's so important for, for people to understand when we're looking at politicians, you know, at the national level. A lot of times, you know, sometimes they do well, sometimes they don't. But you're looking past so many good people <laughs> before you get to Washington D.C. who are doing incredible stuff and raising incredible kids like yourself. Uh, you had an experience in middle school that was transformative for you. And I wanted you just to talk a little bit about that as you're trying to get your footing among classmates. You know, being a Black kid in a school where, like you said, like, you know, vast majority Latino, Latina. Uh, how did that process of navigating those differences as a kid prepare you for your next step becoming a uh, mayor in your 20s?
2: Yeah, what my mom aunt, and grandmother did, without knowing it, they really prepared me to negotiate different. Mm-hmm. So I remember going to, like, private school to ele- for elementary school, even before middle school, where I was one of three Black kids. Mm-hmm. And just having to sort of go... I remember going to my friends' houses and be like, oh my gosh, this is how people live? Like manicured lawns, gated communities, water fountains, like something out of Bel Air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. these, these are people I'm in class with and just learning how to be friends with them and be friends with their parents. And the funny thing is, when I came back to run for office so many of those parents were like the president of the banks or the president. Like these are the folks wow. who i was going to for donations who had a relation with the young black councilman from South Stogner, because they're like, oh, that's t- Tubbs. He's to running in my backyard. And just then that's what's like, oh my gosh, this relationship thing is powerful. And then in middle school, I went from that to sort of a school in my neighborhood that had the international baccalaureate program. So it was really a school within a school. So the wider school looked like the neighborhood very diverse, very working class to, to poor, to, to, to extreme poverty. And then the IB program was the only magnet program of its type in the county. So you had doctor's kids and lawyer's kids and people who work at Livermore labs, their kids there. So being in classroom with kids who looked nothing like the neighborhood mm. and with teachers who had who weren't used to teaching black kids, particularly black men who behaved in ways and had cultural references and cues, and it was, so I was always fighting with my teachers. I was always in trouble. But into, to the point of your question, it was I really enjoy navigating both worlds and just being cool with, like, the folks I rode the bus with. So, like, the folks who may have been in gangs, who may be dealing drugs, who weren't academic, who were the dancers and the athletes and kicking it with them and also kicking it with the Pokemon folks and the folks who were into Yu-Gi-Oh! and the folks who were winning Science Olympiads and the folks who were in band. I recognized that being sort of clear about who I am and being comfortable with who I am made it easier for me to, be, to meet people where they are and to be cool with them where they are and not feel like I need to be this way, this way, or this way, this way, or they need to be this way to hang out with me. But like, no, I like you or no, you're cool. And, and even back then, just making a wide constellation of friends, which kind of helped shape sort of what I thought about the school. Because yeah. my friends who were in the terrible classes, I remember one time they were like, we watched Survivor all
3: week. In school?
2: that's what i said i said what and and it was just this fact this the inputs Mm. were super fascinating which helped inform like a a a view of that community that was more sort of nuanced than sort of i'm special because i'm in the smart classes right and these other folks aren't as special so i don't need to engage with them
3: you coming off of that springboard of having a a loving family even though it's under stress going to a very interesting school system where you could see both sides of everything, Decide at a very young age that you want to run for office. Now, that's not, that's a plot twist. <laughs> that's not, I mean, ordinarily you would think, okay, well, I'm going to go get my own house in Bel there, or I'm going to get my, or, you know, I'm going to, whatever, I'm going to run with the gang members. I'm going to do something that I saw someone else doing at least, hmm. uh, but you didn't do anything you saw somebody else doing. You decided to run for the number one spot in city government. Talk about your decision to get involved in politics and especially to run for mayor. And you were mayor at 26? Yeah. So yeah, you were yeah. like the youngest mayor in the country at that time? Ever. of a city of more than 100,000 people. That's a plot twist. Talk, talk, talk to me a little bit about that.
2: So after graduated, I was able to go to Stanford and I was just another sort of <laughs> world. At Stanford, I had no intention of going back to Stockton. I, was, I My intention was, this is a cool place. My mom said, don't come back. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing here for you. But then my cousin was murdered while interning in the White House, he was murdered in Stockton. And it was really sort of going back and seeing, cause I think oftentimes when you go through something traumatic, it, I think a normal response is to think it's just you. So that was my first response. Like, woe is me, woe is my family, this is terrible. But then going back for the funeral and realizing that this is actually a common occurrence for certain folks in certain parts of the city. And that just really upset me. Mm. So then I decided to run for city council. And then at the time, and stopped Stockton, to run for city council, you had to run citywide. So as a 21-year-old college senior, ran for city council, had to run citywide, and was a top vote getter. And that became again just unlikely folks, gated communities, and in, in, in my district, and that became sort of the foundation for when I decided to run for mayor four years later. And I ran for mayor um, after one term on council because I didn't want to. Like, I actually wanted to run for another office called county supervisor, because I was really interested in the jails and probation. And it was going to be an easier race, and the job paid. Like, there was a million reasons why being a county supervisor just made more sense than running for mayor of my beloved but challenging hometown Southern California. But it was really this idea that, hmm, maybe the hard thing, the thing I don't want to do, is the thing I'm supposed to do. And and the crazy thing is, man, the field was already set. There was like eight people running already. Wow. So there was like, there was like, they come in, county supervisor. Um, and I was like, I think you guys, I'm really supposed to run. I just felt like a real, mm. I was very worried that if I ran for county supervisor, nothing would work because I'm supposed to run for mayor. And I'm just very terrified of being out of alignment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like That's my mm-hmm. biggest fear in life. So I was like, wow. so I'm supposed to do. And knowing that my council would be three Republicans and three Democrats, and, and knowing that I would have to find sort of ways, particularly at a time to, in 2015 16 when I ran for mayor, where the country was becoming not becoming polarized, but the polarization was becoming very apparent. But I was crazy enough to run. So,
3: and, and you and you were uh, crazy enough to get some things done. You know, what were your kind of challenges before you ran for mayor? What are some of the challenges that you faced, and how did you overcome them? I think that's the most important thing. You know, What did you learn in that those four years before you ran for mayor that you wish somebody had told you about or somebody in your situation needs to know?
2: Yeah, I wish it, it didn't take me as long as I realized that relationships are so powerful, even at the local level. Yes. So I think at first you go in and, and, and it's particularly politics is tribal. So you go in trying to figure out who's my tribe. But then I recognize being new, I could talk to everyone. And and have a clear idea about who do I work with and who are like my, my people people, but no one needs to know that. That doesn't have to be apparent parent. everyone. everyone could feel like we're friends. Mm-hmm. So I just made all type of unlikely relationships. I remember sitting down with the police union, who vehemently did not endorse me, and and saying, "Well, look, I'm the guy, so we should probably figure out a way to work together." And I, like, I don't I don't see things the way you see it, but I mean. You're a powerful force in the city. So I need to at least, I need to be at least some, a little bit of communication. And also I spend a lot of time just studying the organization. Like staff has a lot of power. So I spend a lot of time with department heads and I spend a lot of time with their number twos because that's where all the work happens. Absolutely. It happens at the mid-management level because the department has changed all the time. So I spend a lot of time with them and learning sort of their pain points and really understanding the bureaucracy. And I think to answer your question directly, what I wish I had known before becoming a city council person was just because the city appeared broken. That didn't mean everything was broken, mm. right? I came in thinking we were bankrupt when I ran for office. We had the highest per capita homicide rate in the country when I ran for city council. So I was like, no one knows what they're doing, and everything is broken. And that was my orientation for the first year. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, like, nah. There's a lot of people that don't know what they're doing, but there's some really smart people working. And I got to figure my job of leadership is to let them work without fear of retribution, without fear of being penalized, without fear of being ostracized. And, and identifying who are the people who are actually doing something and getting them on, on the team. So I, so I did that. I made a conscious effort to make build a big relationship with my police chief. And this was really before sort of Black Lives Matter civil unrest. But I'm so glad I did it before so that when that stuff happened, we were like not and at odds, but really clear about our values and how we were going to do this and how we're going to show together what a functional relationship between a young Black quote-unquote progressive mayor and a white quote-unquote conservative police chief could look like, but I really think the wisdom was just being young and dumb and just not trying to be everyone's friend so everyone liked me, but trying to be everyone's friend so I could get stuff done.
1: and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation.
0: On the Nintendo Switch system, there's so many worlds you can explore.
1: Like Hyrule, where I can fight enemies and save the kingdom with Link.
0: <laughs> that sounds adventurous.
1: Or my very own island in Animal Crossing New Horizons, where I can fish whenever I want.
0: The size of that thing! You can find even more worlds to explore on the Nintendo Switch system. Games rated E to E ten plus. Games and systems sold separately.
3: Let's get into it in terms of some of the things that you took on both in city council and in the mayor's office. You seem to have a special focus on poverty you seem to have a special focus on the people who you went to school with who were watching Survivor (laughs) and trying to survive (laughs) as opposed to the ones who were with the baccalaureate folks trying to thrive. Was poverty a unifying issue? Was it a divisive issue? How did you, why did you focus on that? Not just from a personal point of view, we get that, but politically, why was that worth the bet? And how were you able to make it pay off?
2: Well, when I started, uh, honestly, as a city council member, I was just exhausted because we were trying to solve all these issues. And then when I became mayor, I, I was reading Paul Farmer, Mountains Beyond Mountains and learned about structural violence or the avoidable impairment of basic human needs. And I was like, aha, this is what I'm in government for, to, to, to deal with this. And realized that in Stockton, folks were on Nextdoor or on Facebook or in the chambers complaining about homelessness or complaining about crime or complaining about economic development. Like, we were complaining about everything, but the root cause was poverty. And I remember my first month getting my team together and saying, listen, the city may not be the best sort of place in government to do this work, but for us to do our work, (laughs) poverty has to be addressed. So we're going to orient ourselves into being a very pro-opportunity, anti-poverty administration.
3: You know, when you talk about Poverty, that's the issue, but then what is the solution? One of the things that you came forward with was this idea of, you know, what now it's called UBI, universal basic income, basic income, whatever. But this was, uh, you know, Andrew Yang made it globally famous, but you were one of the early, early pioneers on this idea of putting money directly into the pockets of people and giving them the authority and the sovereignty. What do you want to do with the money? Not what does the department tell you, what does social <laughs> services tell you, but what do you want to do? Talk about that, because I think that's the key thing that you're known for, but it was not easy to put into place. So after the
2: conversation with my team around poverty, I had a group of like very smart fellows who were like grad students at, at schools and stuff. And I would just send them, like, midnight texts about questions I had. <laughs> so one of the questions was, give me, like, a policy. Like, what can government do? And they came back with sort of a guaranteed income and I, or basic income. And I remember in college reading Where Do We Go From Here by Dr. King, where he talks about the guaranteed income. And I remember, like, literally circling that passage and saying, what happened? <laughs> like, Because I had, you know, growing up in church and being like in quote unquote leadership stuff, like you talk about Dr. King all the time, but I had never heard anyone mention guaranteed income as part of his legacy. So I remember being really interested. So then fast forward eight years later, when my team comes back, we give people money. I was like, "Yo, mm-hmm. Dr. King was talking about this. So I said, let's do a little bit more research. And they did more research and talked about how Nixon was running experiments in the 60s and how Donald Runsville was one of the folks like championing it in the Nixon administration. Like, all the, I was like, really? And I was like, what happened? And then the next week, I ended up being in a room with um, Natalie Foster from the Economic Security Project. And she was like, we're looking for a city to pilot basic income. And are you familiar with the con-? And then she starts explaining to me, and I'm and again, it's just one of those moments where like, it felt alignment. Right. So I, I said, Natalie, I have a task force set up studying this issue in earnest. We,
1: mm-hmm. right. <laughs> and it's just like,
2: absolutely. Wow. And then we, that's how the, um, the basic income program in Stockton was started. And we launched in October 2017. And on that day, President Biden gave a speech in front of a coal mine talking about like dignity of work. And someone asked him about universal basic income because we are doing our big announcement. Um, the same day. And he was like, no, I believe in dignity of work, et cetera, et cetera. And then my first question I got as a 27-year-old was, Mayor Tubbs, um, Vice President Biden just said, dignity of work, guaranteed, guaranteed, this make sense. What do you, what do you think? And it was in that moment I realized that the challenge was that it is also pretty universal the contempt we have for poor people. Mm-hmm. And that's why I realized that the work would be so much more than actually doing the pilot. It was going to be about explaining why, and not and not hedging my comments, not saying that we're going to check for drugs and test for drugs, mm-hmm. or everyone needs to work. But really saying, no, I trust my folks. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I think people want to spend money how like you and me spend money. And I mean, it seems so easy now, but I was saying those things with no data. <laughs> I was saying I was just saying those things because I believed them. But I and then my staff would say, "You got to stop talking like that." Like, what if you're wrong? And I was like. I don't see how this could be wrong, you guys. I just don't see how uh, elevating d- the dignity of our neighbors is, is, is wrong. But no, to your point, it was very, very. looking back now, it was very scary, but
3: it just felt right. Let's let's dig into it, though. So first of all, just big picture, was the, the pilot successful from your point of view?
2: Yeah, so what we did, we gave $500 a month to 125 randomly selected families that looked like the city. And what we saw with, in year one, which was 2019, was that, folks who received the guaranteed income were two times more likely to go from part-time to full-time jobs than those who didn't. So people were working more. <laughs> and, and, which is the opposite of what everyone said was going to happen. and and then we also found that those who received the guaranteed income were two times less likely to be unemployed than those who who did not. We saw, in terms of health impacts, those who received the guaranteed income, had on the Kessler scale a, a delta or a change in their stress and anxiety levels akin to clinical trials of Prozac. Wow. Literally, like, so much stress and anxiety may be contributing to the mental health issues we have in this country and there's probably clinical solutions but there's also, like, cash solution <laughs> um, yeah. as well. So we saw, and then, the data's not out yet, but later this year when they released the data from 2020 during COVID, comparing those who received their $500 and with those who didn't. And that data, I'm sure, will, will further illuminate and elucidate the fact that sort of cash can't solve everything, but it can solve everything that has to do with cash. Like, <laughs> when we first saw the data, and they're going to get mad at me for telling you this, the researchers were scared to put it out. Why? They were like, "This is too good." Like, let's stay. they had, they had to triple check that thing. They literally had to triple check. They're it. Like, no, they no, like, no. It's
3: like, it, it, like, it must have been the case that these poor folks screwed this money up.
2: <laughs> they were just like, they was like, we have to just make sure it's good because okay. we don't want to be
3: ripped apart." Sure. And then the employment
2: data, especially, so they ran it again
3: and ran it again and interviewed. When you say it, when you say it, it's surprising for two seconds, and then you realize, a lot of times, I think about my own family. People understand. If you have zero cushion, no cushion, that means you get a flat tire, that 140 bucks you don't have, you can now not get to work. And so just cushion, (laughs) just some shock absorbers for life means that you can actually start to climb. And everybody understands that. That's why people want to have savings accounts and stuff like that, because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But we don't apply that logic to people at the bottom. We apply that logic to everybody else, but we assume that if you give somebody at the bottom a the dollar, they're going to somehow waste it.
2: And, and then part of the, for some of our programs, and we're working on changing that, at least in California, part of the issue is that you're demanding so much, like time is currency. You're demanding so much time of people Preach. who don't have money to fill out forms to meet with you, which means that's time away from work. And as we saw the pandemic, a whole bunch of people don't have paid time off. Mm-hmm. A huge segment of our population actually have no financial cushion and no time cushion. And for me, that was the most powerful lesson about this, the guaranteed income experiment was this notion of time being currency, but also this notion of common humanity. I remember talking about the spending data, and a lot of like newscasters and folks were surprised. Hmm. And I said, Do you think? the randomly selected people who receive the money are just categorically different species than you? Mm. Like, do you think that, like, they they spend money how you spend money because they're people like you. Like, right, like right. And, and, and I realize that love or hate, like, that's an equally human person. Like, that person's equally
3: human to you. Look, I, I think that this is a breakthrough idea in, in that, both liberals and conservatives have had a very paternalistic view of poor folks. On the conservative side, sometimes it's an assumption that there's a lack of discipline and so you need to have you know law and order and kind of you know tough crime policies. On the liberal side, it's like you just don't have enough nannies watching over you and telling you what to do. And so it's a <laughs> lot of social services, et cetera. Your idea is a breakthrough idea because it does rely on this confidence that people actually, no matter how poor they are, they know what's best for them. And that most times, even though you know, everybody makes mistakes up and down the class ladder. Most times, most people, given the chance, will do the right thing. And so I can see how both sides would be skeptical at first. What has been your most successful argument with people on the right? And what's been your most successful argument with people on the left?
2: Yeah, with, with people on the right, it's this idea of freedom um, and autonomy. Like, this is ultimate liberty. It's ultimate liberty. It's freedom. It's like, you decide what you want to do with your money, and you, you live with the consequences of said choices, right? It's, it, it speaks to that. And on the liberal side, it's really been matter an issue of justice. Like this is about correcting systemic issues. This is about sort of trying to create at least some semblance of not necessarily a level playing field, but a field. Everyone gets a field. Everyone has a floor. Everyone has a foundation. And this is about sort of justice. And this is about a feminist economy. What's powerful about guaranteed income is that Women do all types of uncompensated labor, and so many women leave the workforce for caregiving mm-hmm. and to take care of their children, which is great. But they're not paid for that. If it's their children, they they will get paid if they went down the street right. and did it for someone else's children. But if it's their children, it's no longer work. So it's about compensating that and other sort of work that happens in the house. And that really seems to to that seems to resonate. With, with and on top of the Black Panthers and Dr. King, and that's like, oh yeah, this, this, is our, this is our gem. But it's funny because on both sides, on, in terms of critiques on the liberal side, I've had to have a lot of conversations with folks about how this is not meant to absolve employers of their responsibility. Mm-hmm. This is not as a substitute for minimum wage. This is not as a, let's erase the safety net and just do this. Doing this makes those other fights easier or more winnable. And then on the right, a lot of the criticism has just been about sort of earning. Like these folks didn't earn, earn, like you're just giving people. We don't give, and so it's about the history of like, no, in this country, we actually give people stuff all the time, like tax breaks, land, college education. Like we, we four hundred. It was four hundred years of. I mean, like the the whole foundation of this country, in the economy, and even the formation of the country is based off sort of free stuff, like taking Native Americans' land and genocide and 400 years of free human labor from human trafficked individuals. Like, so uh, it's it's showing like this is actually part of reclaiming the comets. Like everyone is contributing to this. Like everyone is contributing to the ability to provide a floor for everyone and we all benefit from it.
3: Let's talk about baby bonds. Uh, This idea that, you know, when a kid is born, they should put some money into you know, stocks and bonds for him so that when uh, he or she gets to a certain age, the stock market has been building up wealth for them. This is a, a, another kind of a breakthrough idea. Does that idea have appeal to you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm part of a group called, I started a group called In Poverty in California to assist with like a narrative around poverty and to focus on poverty in California. And one of the big policy proposals is baby bonds. Like let's do something pre-distributional. Let's do something at birth that it compound interest and in accrue so that, we can't rec. We should be able to, but it's going to be hard politically to rectify all the mistakes of the past. But we can do something for the future. And I think that's what baby bonds represent, and and the fact that Derek Hamilton and others have done research that show that just doing that in a way that's smart can reduce or eliminate the racial wealth gap in one generation. I think is an incredible opportunity mm-hmm. um, for all of us, and so it's something I'm, I'm really excited about, and and. That's in my economic repertoire as well. I <laughs> got all the things, baby bonds, guaranteed income, retirement security, et cetera.
3: You know, I, I love talking to you. I, I just, you know, it it gives me a lot of hope and encouragement because you aren't just dreaming about this stuff and writing about this stuff. You've actually done it. And then you're talking about trying to close the racial wealth gap by turning, you know, little black and brown and, and underrepresented white babies into investors early so they can benefit later. You're not saying, oh, I hate all the rich people or I hate all the immigrants. You're saying, no, no, no. I want to see this outcome of dignity, cash, opportunity for people. And I'm willing to work with anybody to get there. To me, that's the kind of positive populism that doesn't require an enemy, doesn't require a big hate mob, doesn't require anybody to be maligned, but can actually deliver the goods. And I just appreciate that you stand for that kind of solutions-oriented politics. It just seems really rare these days.
2: Well, because I think when... The enemy in a sort of a populist conversation is a group versus a system, like that anger and fury ends up turning on something and so or imploding, but I also understand that sort of folks occupying certain roles aren't necessarily those that created the problem and and the problem isn't it's the system it's the process by which these outcomes are created, so that's why all my energy is always about like, okay, let's get to this outcome. Mm-hmm. And something you said earlier reminded me of something a mentor told me one time when I went to tweet something. We were working on body cameras for officers and I wanted to break it early. I went to tweet like, we need to do this. And my police chief, he said, Councilman Tubbs, do you want to be heard or do you want to be effective? Mm -hmm. I was like, what do you mean? He said, I mean, you could apply the pressure and tweet and get people riled up, but then the union won't come to the table, which we need to get this done. He said, but what if we just work behind the scenes for like six months Mm -hmm. and bring them in? And then if that doesn't do anything, then you should make some noise. But let's try it. Right. And that lesson stuck with me because we got those body cameras through, 7-0 vote, no controversy. No one was mad. No permanent friends, no permanent enemies, just permanent issues is, is sort of what I live by.
3: I, I, people ask you all the time, w- when you're running, what's, what's, what's the next? I know you got a little kid just starting preschool. You just, you just got out the political game, but they're not going to let you stay out. Governor, senator, president, who am I talking to right now?
2: Yeah, I, I think once I'm in a position so this and I'll shut up after this, but the scariest thing about losing mm-hmm. was realizing how precarious our financial situation was. My wife um is a best selling author now, but then she was just writing a book, she was a PhD student, she was a, mm-hmm. a counselor, I was a mayor, so when we both had checks coming every week, then we had all our weren't rich, but our bills were paid. Right. But when I was like lost, there's no like unemployment for elected officials. Right. And I spent my twenties as a teacher, council member, and mayor. So there was not a big so anyway, it was terrifying to think about, okay, how are we gonna pay childcare in two months? How are we gonna so I think now I'm in the space where I'm gonna keep doing the work, but I have to get in a position where mm-hmm. if I go into public service again, it's it's with my family having their basic needs met. Yep. And that whether I win or lose, yep. we know that tuition's paid for. We know that like everything's good. Cause I was I never want to feel that way again. So, and I'm also 31 years yeah, old. So young, maybe 20, yeah, got, yeah. you, you, I got a lot of time. Yeah, you, you, so maybe 20 years from now. I don't know. What did you learn from the loss? Man, I learned a bunch of things, man. I learned number one, that for me, purpose is not tied to position. And that's sort of your, your purpose. Your position is a tool by which you accomplish your purpose, but your, your position isn't your purpose. And, and then number two, I learned that everyone knows what they're willing to win for but I feel like it's such a gift to have such clarity now about what I'm willing to lose for. Mm-hmm. Like, I, and who I'm willing to lose for. Like, I'm willing to lose on this issue of poverty. Mm. I'm willing to lose on being anti-white supremacy. I'm, like, willing to lose on those things. And and that loss made that very clear. That's a big part of the reason why mm-hmm. I lost. And then, and then number three, I learned that when you think you're humble, that means you're not humble. Like, I used to think I was humble. Mm. But, like, being humble means not thinking of yourself. So if you think like, "Oh, I'm humble," that means you're like, "I could be this because I did because I know how good I am." But so so I realized, mm-hmm. I, like I I thought I was humble, but after losing, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like that wasn't like, there was a lot of pride that had to had to be broken down. And then and and then lastly, I, I learned that change comes at a price. Like I had, I had been so effective, and so much stuff was moving in momentum. Mm. I thought like it was des- like it was destiny like we just gonna keep things are gonna keep changing we keep having these big fights And I like no you'll win mm-hmm. but sometimes you're gonna lose right. and 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 it's how you bounce back from that like so those are the sort of four or five of the biggest lessons I learned from losing
3: man at, at 31 to have this much wisdom insight and also determination is it's a it's a beautiful thing man and it's inspiring and it's encouraging as as we close people I'm sure would love to hear from you. You know how can they get involved with what you are doing? How can they stay informed about these issues? Anything that you would want to give people who are listening to this uh, in terms of direction about either being informed or being involved?
2: My Twitter is at Michael D Tubbs. If you are interested in guaranteed income, you can follow at Mayors for agi Mayors for Guaranteed Income and the Poverty Work in California in Poverty in CA at In Poverty in CA. And then, sometime this year, an, another effort um which I know you've been integral to around retirement security mm-hmm. and, and and like a baby bonds for grown ups yep. um, basically uh will will we'll be coming soon, so all these sort of ideas around how do we just create an economy like we we see the economy works for some folks, like so how do you just make it work for everyone <laughs> it, it that, is the question
3: that's good The good thing about my role is I get a chance to talk to great people. Um, for a living. Uh, but there are very few people I've talked to in this whole podcast series that leave me and just pumped up as I'm with you. And so... Uh,
2: uh, that's high praise. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh,
3: but we'll, we'll have you back again and again if, if you're willing to do it. And uh, I appreciate talking to you. Who knows? You're 31. By the time you're 41, 51, 61, what you will have been able to do. Huge, huge appreciation having you here, Michael Tubbs.
2: Oh, thank you, man. It's appreciate it. I always get to talk to you. you so in, you inspire a lot of us. Yeah. Um, so thank you.
3: We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful.
0: Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp, to welcome them to the Golden Door.
3: Well, I I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It's really something to see somebody of any age that much wisdom and who's been able to help that many people. And I think he's just getting started. And I think that there's a lot to be learned from this idea of relationships. For whatever reason, Tubbs at an early age figured out how to make friends with a lot of different kind of people. And that has served him very, very well. And as we talked about, I think it's so much easier to make enemies these days with social media and all the partisan division. It's a lot harder to make friends, but those friendships, therefore, are a lot more valuable. If you want to have even more insight into how he's done what he's done and how we can do more of that kind of stuff, uh, he actually has a book out called The Deeper the Roots, a memoir of hope and home. Uh, I hope you get it. I hope you read it. I hope you share it. And I hope to see you again very soon on Uncommon Ground. I'm Van Jones. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credewill. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for the show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Morais, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter. Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Swindeman, Brianna Jones, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Kerry McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkine, Vanessa Redbert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louis, and Chris Jacobin. Hey, Prime members, you can listen
0: to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.